Friends, please take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 1 this morning. Psalm 1, it's on page 448 of the Bible underneath your seat. Friends, this morning we begin a eight-sermon series in the book of Psalms. I'm guessing if you're a Christian, the Psalms are your friend. I imagine that they've been a source of comfort and hope and turbulent times in your life, just like they have been for God's people for nearly 3,000 years now. The 150 songs contained in this divinely inspired songbook express truth through poetry. So they not only touch our minds, but our emotions, our affections. So many of the psalms meet us in our darkest days because the authors often wrote them in their darkest days. The beautiful poetry of the Psalms help us express joy and sorrow, delight and anger, confident hope and raw honesty, grief over sin and thankfulness that they've been forgiven. As one author puts so well, from the deepest pits to the highest heavens, these songs tell stories about real life in a cursed world with a covenant God. Friends, the English word psalm, if that word is not familiar to us, simply comes from the Greek word psalmos, which which means song. Uh, The Hebrew name for the Psalter, the book of Psalms, is tehillim, which means praises. Uh, The the Psalter is simply a songbook of praises for use in public worship and the private prayer lives of God's people. Now, friends, our, our typical practice at Redeeming Grace is to preach straight through books of the Bible. That's what we just, just got done doing with 1 Timothy. But if we did that with the Psalms, this sermon series would last about three years <laughs> or a little more if I took some breaks. So uh, if you look at the upcoming sermons in the back of the bulletin, I'm sure you were relieved to see that that's not what we're going to do. We're not going straight through. Instead, I'm going to preach eight Psalms that I've picked strategically to help us understand how the Psalter is put together. Friends, did you know that the Psalms, the Psalms are not a random, haphazardly arranged collection of sacred sheet music. I think that's how most Christians conceive of the Psalms. It's kind of a, a potpourri grab bag of theological songs, but really that's not how it is at all. There is a definite design to the Psalms, a careful, intentional arrangement that, that is intended to communicate certain ideas and even have a specific focus. So, so before we jump into Psalm 1, I want to explain a little bit more of how the, the Psalter, the Psalms, are intentionally structured. And then hopefully this, the specific Psalms that I've chosen for this sermon series will make sense to you. So stay with me for the next few minutes, and then we'll jump into Psalm 1 uh, with both feet, Okay. The first way to see that the Psalms are are not a random collection is by seeing that that the Psalter is divided into five books or five volumes or five major sections. So so notice what it says above Psalm 1 in your ESV, if that's the translation you're looking at. Really, any translation worth its salt will show this, okay? It says, Book 1, in all caps, right? And then if you flip over, over to Psalm 42, you'll see book two above Psalm 42 and likewise above Psalm 73, book three, and then above Psalm 90, book four, and then above Psalm 107, book five. 
Sometime after, after the return of God's people from exile, an editor arranged the Psalter into these five books that we have today. How do we know that the arrangement took place after the exile? Well, because there are individual Psalms in the Psalter about Israel's exile outside the lands. So I think what happened is likely King David, who wrote the majority of the Psalms, King David likely began the arrangement of the Psalter, and then probably Ezra or Nehemiah finished the job that David started after, after the exile. Why does this matter? Well, well, given our doctrine of Scripture, friends, we understand that it's not only the words of Scripture that are inspired by God. We believe that the canon of Scripture in its final form originated in God's mind. We believe that not only are the authors of the Psalms inspired, but so was the final editor who arranged them as we see it today. But friends, it's not just that the Psalms have a definite arrangement. There are several clues that the structure of the Psalter is designed to communicate something very intentionally. One clue is that the last psalm in each book, the last psalm in each book ends with a doxology that is remarkably similar to one another, okay? We're not going to take time to look at it right now, but this afternoon in your free time or this week, read the end of Psalm 41, in Psalm 72, in Psalm 89, in Psalm 106, and you will see, 106, excuse me, and you will see astoundingly similar doxologies that, that praise the Lord that end those psalms, that end the, the books of the psalms. But there are other clues that the Psalter is intentionally arranged. Not only does the last psalm in each book have a similar doxology, most of those psalms are royal psalms. They're explicitly messianic. Okay, so for instance, Psalm 72. Psalm 72, the last psalm in book two, is a prayer for King David's royal successor who will inherit his throne and fulfill God's promises to bring salvation to the world. It's a prayer for the future Messiah. We're going to look at it here in a few weeks. Psalm 89, the last psalm in book three, is a lament that God's promise to David seems to be broken. And it calls upon the Lord to be faithful and to remember his promise, his covenant with David to set his king on the throne. So I'm, I'm just kind of giving you a taste of this now. But what I'm saying, friends, is that the arrangement of the Psalms help tell the story of the coming salvation through the lens of the Davidic covenant. Okay, so, so here's what, I, here's what I, uh, is the case. Psalm 1 that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together open the Psalter. They're kind of like the, the musical prologue to the Psalms. They introduce the blessed man and ultimately the King Messiah who will reign over the nations. Psalms 146 to 150 together are the grand finale, the climactic conclusion to the Psalter. And then the Psalms at the end of each book highlight the story of God's redemption through his promised king. So we're going to take an eight-sermon walk through the Psalms that highlight this structure, okay? We're going to look at Psalms 1 and 2 at the opening, and then we're going to look at Psalm 41, Psalm 72, 89, and 106 at the end of books 1 to 4, and then we're going to look at Psalm 145 and 150 at the end of book 5, okay? Here's what I hope to show you in this series. Here's what I hope we learn together. Rather than seeing the Psalms as kind of individual photographs, I think we should instead see them as a, an intentional collage of photographs that tell a specific story, kind of like a photo, photo book of your life would tell your story in kind of impressionistic ways. 
The Psalms aren't random songs in the ancient Hebrew playlist. They're an anthology of songs arranged to impress upon us the reality that God's Messiah is coming. And as Christians who sing these Psalms on this side of the cross, we sing them because God's Messiah has come. Our Lord Jesus Christ fulfills the Psalms. So we don't sing the psalm so much in longing that Jesus would come, but with gratitude that God kept his word. And because of that, he's worthy of our highest praise. As the Psalter closes, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Okay, if you didn't catch all that, no worries. We'll we'll come back to it as we march through this series. That may be the longest introduction to a sermon I've ever given. Now let's turn our attention to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Let's read together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that gives its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, Psalm 1 is is kind of like the foyer to the mansion of the Psalms. It represents the perspective that we should have when we read the rest of the Psalms. Psalm 1 reflects the worldview of the Psalter and really the worldview of the entire Bible. There are only two ways to live. Either you'll fear the Lord and delight in His Word, or else you'll turn away from the Lord in sin and rebellion. It's really the choice between life and death. Here's the main idea of Psalm 1, which I hope will be the main idea of of the sermon this morning. The main idea of Psalm 1. Do you want to truly flourish both now and eternally? Delight yourself in God's word and ultimately in God's king. Do you want to truly flourish, to live the life that God intends for you to live both now and eternally? Well, then delight yourself in God's word and ultimately in the king that he installs. Now, I know that this word flourish that I'm using here in the main idea is maybe not a word that we use every day in our lingo. And believe me, I tried to think of a better word to use, but at the end of the day, I'm I'm just sticking with it, okay? I'm doubling down on the word flourish because I think it describes what the psalmist means when he uses the word blessed, right? Verse one, blessed is the man. He's not talking so much about God's blessing of us, although there's no question that the blessed man enjoys God's favor. There's another Hebrew word for for God's blessing of of people than the one the psalmist uses here. Rather, the psalmist is highlighting, highlighting a state of being. He conjures in our minds the type of life that we all want, the good life, the abundant life, the fulfilled life, the life of true flourishing. If you were to ask most modern Americans today how to flourish, how to live this best life, I think they would say something to the effect of, well, first you have to know yourself. You have to realize who you are. 
And then you have to actualize what you've discovered yourself to be. Individual self-expression is the path to the good life. Our culture screams this at us in mantras and in movies and in music. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Nothing should stand in the way of you living the good life as you define it and as you conceive it. But along comes the worldview of Psalm 1, friends, and it just slaps us graciously in the face, right? Thankfully, the Bible does not dehumanize our instinct to be happy and to flourish. It instead shows us where that happiness and flourishing are located. Instead of seeking happiness within ourselves, the source of true fulfillment is located outside ourselves in relationship to God. So do you want to, to truly flourish, friends, both now and eternally? Delight yourself in God's word and ultimately in his king. Three points this morning that reflect, I think, the, the, the stanzas, so to speak, of this song. Number one, the way of the blessed man. We'll look at that in verses one and two, the way of the blessed man. Number two, the picture of the blessed man and the wicked in verses three and four. Number three, the future of both. Number one, the way of the blessed man. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that the life of true flourishing is found in what we steer clear of and in what we give ourselves to. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So English poetry, friends, typically rhymes sounds. Hebrew poetry rhymes thoughts, and we see that here in verse 1. It's rhyming thoughts. Each of these lines in verse 1 is a poetic way of illuminating what we must avoid in order to have the life that God intends us, for us to have. Beloved, despite appearances, true flourishing is not found among those who set themselves against God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of the wicked... I naturally think of the worst, right, that humanity has to offer. The murderers, the pedophiles, the sex traffickers, the, the genocidal dictators. But notice the psalmist's conception of the wicked is much broader than that. Synonymous with the wicked in verse 1 are sinners, just a, a broad category for those who transgress God's law, and the scoffers, those who mock God and his people. So friends, the wicked are simply those who reject God and his word. Instead, they bow their knee to gods of their own making. The blessed man realizes that God has set himself against the wicked and therefore true life as God intends necessarily cannot be found in the company of the wicked. Notice the psalmist emphasizes that the blessed man does not yield his thought life to the maxims and principles of the wicked. That's what he means by the counsel of the wicked. It's not so much talking about personal advice, that type of counsel, as it is kind of the influence and mindset of those who have rejected God and his word. Friends, the blessed man isn't content to swim in whatever direction the cultural current is taking him. He doesn't let the wicked shape his view of God's world. Instead, what influences his mind and heart is God's word. He doesn't give himself fully to the news pundits and entertainers and social media influencers of the world. Instead, he submits his mind and his heart to God's word to shape the way that he thinks and responds and lives. Not only does the blessed man not walk in the counsel of the wicked, he does not stand in the way of sinners. 
Okay, so not only does he avoid thinking the way the wicked do, he refuses to live in the way that sinners do. He refrains from the activities and behaviors of those without without God, the, the behaviors that those without God believe really do constitute the good life. The blessed man understands that true life is not found in illicit sexual pleasure or drunkenness or the high of an addiction to drugs or money. The flourishing life is not found in greed or power or earthly comfort or anything purely earthly, whether it's something contrary to God's word or even a good gift that we make into a false god. The blessed man refuses to stand with sinners. And certainly, the flourishing life is not found in mocking God or God's people or God's word. The blessed man does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Friends, if this, if this verse is meant to kind of portray a progression into sin, as I think it is, the psalmist seems to be saying that there is something worse than the mere committing of sin. There's something worse. The height of rebellion against God is the mocking and insulting of the good. You don't have to look hard to find that in this world, do you? In our, in our culture, in our country. Just turn on a late night talk show. And it probably won't take long for the show hosts or the guests to openly mock Christianity or the Bible or the biblical ethic all for a barrel of laughs. If you paid attention as the Roe decision came down this week and you watched social media, you listened to many news outlets, they became a cesspool of this type of Psalm 1 scoffing. Beloved, we live in a day when not sitting in the seat of scoffers is increasingly challenging. Christians who refuse to affirm the LGBTQ agenda in the workplace are thought of as anti-progress at best and bigots at worst. Brother, sister, if you want a promotion in the workplace, don't be surprised that if it's no longer based purely on your job performance alone but on whether you'll swim along with the, with the current of sexual expression and inclusivism, of whether you'll use a person's preferred pronouns and celebrate Pride Month. Beloved, Psalm 1-1 ought to give you courage. It ought to instill courage in you to graciously yet tenaciously refuse to call good what the Scripture calls evil. Far better to lose your job and spiritually flourish than to keep it while falling in league with the scoffers and the wicked. Friends, notice how verse 1 seems to point to an incremental hardening of a person's heart when we pursue sin. First we walk, then we stand, then we sit. It moves from informal relationship to close association. Imagine you're, you know, you're walking along a road with someone who strikes up a conversation with you, right? You're intrigued, you're walking, you're intrigued, so you stop, you stand, you have the conversation with him. What he says further grips you, so then you sit down with a meal, uh, for a meal with that person to find out even more. Well, this illustrates, friends, this progression illustrates the progressive hardening of sin. At first, it's just dabbling in the way the wicked think, but by the end, it's sitting with them in open mockery of the righteous. Brothers and sisters, the road to hell does not typically lead off the cliff face. Rather, it's normally a gradual decline. Walking, standing, sitting. 
The psalmist says, no matter how much it may appear that the good life, the life of flourishing is found in wickedness, that, that, that appearance is a mirage. The blessed man refuses to be in league with sinners in their sin. But notice, friends, it isn't just what the blessed man avoids. It's not just what he avoids. It's what he delights in. The psalmist continues in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Friends, given the flow of the song so far, you might expect what comes next is that while the blessed man refuses to fall in line with the wicked, he does fall in line with the righteous. But surprise, that's not the direction that the psalmist heads. Instead, he focuses on what captures the blessed man's heart, right? What enraptures his soul, what fills his thoughts. The psalmist drills down to the very operating center of a person's life, his loves and his affections. Our friends, we, we all know, we all know what it is to delight in someone or something, right? Oh, my love is like a red, red rose that's newly sprung in June. Oh, my love is like a melody that sweetly played in tune. And Lindsay's not even in here to hear me say that. <laughs> so wrote Robert Burns, and so is the experience of you in this room with a spouse or a significant other. Those of us who are parents delight in our children. They make our hearts smile except in those times when they really, really don't. But in general, that's what they do. That was a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> we delight in the beautiful sunset over the ocean, right? The exquisitely seared steak. The creme brulee at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. The key to my wife's heart. <laughs> Friends, when you delight in something, you find your joy in it. You can't help but spontaneously praise it for its worth and beauty and the joy that it brings you. Such is the response of the blessed man to God's word. The blessed man flourishes because he delights in the very source of life itself. The word law in verse 2 is the Hebrew word Torah, which simply means instruction. The Torah most specifically refers to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. Of course, it was within the Pentateuch that God gave his people the Mosaic Torah, the law. At first glance, it might kind of seem difficult to imagine delighting in law, finding joy in a bunch of rules. Is that really what the psalmist means? Well, yes and no. Three quick things to help us. Number one, the Torah includes much more than just commandments. The Torah reveals the creator God who in love promises to redeem his fallen creatures through the offspring of woman who will come to crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. The Torah reveals God's gracious covenants with Noah and Abraham and Israel and his mighty acts in history to save his people like in the Exodus. What we call the law includes much more than law. And all of it showcases the glory of God, which is designed to delight our souls. That being said, even the Ten Commandments and the broader Mosaic law, the Old Covenant, are designed to reflect God's gracious rule. You say, John, I thought Christianity is a relationship. It's not a bunch of rules. Yes, 
But both then under the old covenant and now for us as God's people under the new covenant in Christ, it is not a laissez-faire relationship. It's not a do-as-you-want relationship. It is a ruled relationship in which we follow our king where he leads and how he leads in the way that he leads through his word. Number three, as salvation history progressed, all of Scripture, all of it, not just the Pentateuch, are included under kind of a broad umbrella of Torah. So if you would read, for instance, Joshua 24, 26, Joshua 24, 26 says that all that Joshua wrote was Torah, even though it's not in the first five books of the Bible. Jesus in John 10, 34 referred to Psalm 82, 6 as Torah. What's the point? The point is that when we read Psalm 1-2 about delighting in the the Torah, friends, the object of our delight isn't even limited to the first five books of the Bible. Now that we have the whole of Scripture, it's all Torah, and we delight in it all. The Old Testament is God's instruction in which He makes His saving promises. The New Testament is God's Torah in which He reveals and keeps His saving promises through the person and work of His Son. It all reveals God's Torah from cover to cover. Thought I'd get an amen out of that, but I didn't. That's okay. The blessed man, the blessed man, friends, is a man of the entire book. He's a Bible-delighted man. He's like Jeremiah who echoed Psalm 1 when he wrote Jeremiah 15, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. Friends, look at the route. Look at the route that the blessed man takes to delight in God's word. It doesn't happen through a casual encounter, does it? The second half of verse 2 says, and on his law he meditates day and night. The word that's translated meditate there is the Hebrew word for muttering or musing. We literally should have a mental picture of a person reciting God's word to himself as he continually contemplates it. Remember back in the day when we had to memorize phone numbers, right? That's like a a relic of the past, right? But what would we do? How would you memorize a phone number? Well, you would repeat it over and over and over to yourself until you had it down, right? 615-772-6288, And you would would say it until it stuck. Friends, Psalm 1-2 says that the blessed man so delights in the word that he internalizes it. He memorizes the scripture and he meditates on it. And that internalization of the word of God leads to further delight in the God of the word. Friends, is this your approach to the the scripture? Do you memorize the word? Do you meditate and internalize the word? Honestly, the Psalms are a wonderful place to start with scripture memorization. The poetry of the Psalms make them easily memorable. Perhaps even start with verse one or Psalm 1 this week. Make it your goal to memorize and meditate on Psalm 1 even this week. I bet you could easily do that. Friends, Psalm 1 too is remarkable when you consider that most ancient Israelites did not have personal copies of the Scripture to carry around, did they? God's Word was communicated orally, read aloud by the priests to the people in the congregation, and then from the people to each other. They listened to the word read and taught, and then they pinged it back and forth to each other in the echo chamber of their family and their daily relationships. Friends, how much more advantage do we have 
who have the entire canon literally in our hands. Most of us with multiple copies of God's word. What excuse do we have for not letting God's word have the life-shaping effect that it's meant to have in our lives? Friends, this is why the Lord's Day gathering is so important. It's so important to gather on the Lord's Day with God's people because God's word is the number one priority of our lives. At the very centerpiece of our worship is the word. We gather to read the word, to sing the truths of the word, to pray in light of the word, to listen to and obey the preached word, and to see the word in baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's why we gather. It's all about the word. But then we don't stop there, do we? We want the word that we receive on Sunday to resonate in our conversations with each other, at our lunch conversations, and so on. We want to live the blessed life together as the local church. We want to flourish, to grow in health as a church by means of God's word. Number two, the picture of the blessed man and the wicked. Like modern poetry, the Psalms are full of imagery and word pictures to aid communication. And here the psalmist wants to capture our heart's imagination and and really our heart's buy-in about the blessed life by picturing a thriving green tree, right? That's just full of life. It's planted deep in soil. It's nourished by this steady stream of God's word. Verse three, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Friends, the blessed man is pictured as stable. He's he's planted firmly in the soil. He's mature and steady like a tree that that yields its fruit right on time each season. The tree that we're to picture in our minds is so healthy that it is immune to its leaves withering. Now, friends, when do a tree's tree's leaves wither? When do they wither? Well, if it's sick or maybe in harsh conditions, right? Extreme heat, we know that here extreme cold, extreme drought. But this blessed man, like the tree, is impervious to the extreme conditions of life. It doesn't mean that he doesn't feel those conditions or that he doesn't undergo them. No, the Psalms, friend, are full of language that many are the sufferings of the righteous. In the Psalms, we read especially of David's sufferings as king and how his sufferings are kind of form a pattern that are fulfilled by that great and coming king, his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for the sins of his people. Friends, the Psalms do not teach a prosperity gospel. It's not teaching that if you kind of insert the coin of delighting in God's word and kind of the cosmic vending machine that God has in heaven, that out will pop health and wealth, and really whatever you want. That's not the kind of prosper that that the Lord is talking about here. No, what this psalm is saying is that when the harsh conditions of suffering threaten the blessed man, he keeps prospering in all that he does. As the fruitful trees, his leaves will not wither and die. Why? Why? Because he is planted by a stream that continually nourishes it. He's he's nourished by an outside source. The stream here in in this verse likely refers to an irrigation canal that's that's often dug in the ground to help water plants and fields in the hot, arid Middle East. Friends, if you drive down South Bullard, if you go down South Bullard and you drive by 
those farm fields, what do you see? Deeply dug irrigation canals that water those fields. They help supply water to a place where there is little water. Friends, the blessed man is fruitful and steady and mature, not because he has the adequate resources in himself, but because he is planted next to a stream that makes him that way. God's word supplies his life. Friends, this picture of the blessed man is meant to throw our mind's eye back in in history. It's meant to, to throw our mind's eye back to another lush, green, verdant place watered by rivers. I think the psalmist is saying that the blessed man is, is living as if he's returned to Eden. He is living the life that God intended him to live from the beginning. Remember, friends, that the Garden of Eden wasn't just mankind's first home. It wasn't just kind of a horticultural haven. It was God's garden temple, right? It was in the garden that God mediated his presence with Adam and Eve. It was there that they knew him and worshiped him. It was by working and keeping the garden that Adam was to reflect God's dominion and obey him like a son would a father. So I think the psalmist wants us to see that now God's presence is mediated not through a garden, but through his word. You want to enjoy the blessed life? You want to flourish like you were always meant to flourish? Delight in the word of God. It's there that you'll find fellowship with your creator and redeemer. Notice the picture that the psalmist conjures of the wicked could not be more opposite, right, than the blessed man. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The contrast is even more stark in the original Hebrew. It's like the the songwriter pounds his, his fist on the pulpit and says, not so the wicked, grammatically. Not so, totally the opposite. They're not described as fruitful or steady or mature. In fact, the wicked are not even described as a living thing, a tree or a plant. The wicked are like chaff, the unnecessary husk of wheat that the, that the thresher would throw into the air and discard. So futile, so nothing are the wicked that they're driven away by the wind. Friend, chaff does not benefit anyone. Psalm 1 says, neither do the wicked. Clearly, it pictures them under God's hand of judgment. Friends, do you see how this psalm shapes our worldview? Do you see how it's meant to to stir our imagination away from the things of this world and toward the things of the Lord? Kids, teens, do you see this? Do you see it in Psalm 1? Why would you want to join in with the wicked? Why? Picture them even now like chaff that amounts to nothing. Why would we want the pleasures of Babylon when the joys of Zion await us? Why would we set our hearts on and aim our lives toward anything else but God and his word when it's so clear that the life of the wicked amounts to nothing? We've seen the picture of the blessed man and the wicked. Now, number three, we see the future of both. The future of both. You want to know the ultimate reason that the man who delights in God's word is blessed and fruitful while the wicked are pictured as nothing? It's because of their futures. It's because of their futures. The psalmist draws his conclusion in verses five and six. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will 
perish. The psalmist states plainly what he's just pictured, right? By the chaff. The future of the wicked is doomed. He will not stand. He will not rise at the judgment. Friends, I mentioned at the beginning that that Psalm 1 sets the worldview of the Psalter. It represents the worldview of the Bible. There are only two ways to live. In right relationship with God and his word or at odds with God and his word. But there's one more component that we must add to this biblical worldview. And that's this, that judgment day is coming. There's a day coming, a future day of reckoning when all humanity will give an account before God, the righteous and holy judge, our creator. The books will be opened and all the thoughts and intentions of man's heart will be exposed alongside his works. The reason that the wicked are as futile as chaff is because on that last day, God's verdict is going to go against them. Friends, the wicked may seem to be among the world's wisest and most sophisticated. Sinners may seem to stand proud. Scoffers may sit sit, sit in the seat of influence in this world, but they will not rise in the judgment. In other words, God's judgment will upend their standing. Their established seat in this age will mean nothing in the age to come. Our God will judge them righteously, justly, for their wickedness. Apparently, this judgment has a social component as well. Verse 5 adds that sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. Not only will the wicked be separated from God, they'll have no part in the joy of that future last day congregation that's going to receive eternal joy. They'll be separated and isolated in judgment. But how can we be so sure? How can we be so sure that this is right? Verse 6, 4, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Friends, the, the Lord doesn't just know the way of the wicked as a, or the way of the righteous as a, as a fact. He knows it in affection and approval. This isn't just factual knowledge. This is relational knowledge. The Lord knows the way of the righteous because he is the one whose instruction the righteous delight in. How can we be so sure that the blessed man will not suffer the same verdict as the wicked? How can we be so sure that God will be just in his judgment? Because the Lord knows. It's because of his knowledge. He knows the way of the righteous. The obvious implication here is that the righteous will stand on that day. They'll receive a favorable verdict. But not so the wicked. The psalmist hammers it home in the final line of the song. The way of the wicked will perish entirely. It's a one-way road to destruction. Friends, the psalm begins with blessed and it ends with perish. Could the two ways to live be any more clear? Friends, I don't know about you, but when I read Psalm 1, I have no confidence that on my own, I am the blessed man. I'm guessing that you, like me, could confess this morning to countless times in your life when your delight was misplaced. It wasn't in the word, it was in lesser things. We could all rehearse and replay moments in our lives when we indeed did walk in the counsel of the wicked and stood in the way of sinners, and sat in the seat of scoffers. 
So the question really is, as we look at this psalm, how can any of us be sure that the blessed man sung about in Psalm 1 describes us? I'll defer to my friend Sam Amati, a pastor who said it well. Psalm 1 can describe us genuinely because it's not about us ultimately. Psalm 1 can describe us genuinely because it's not about us ultimately. Say, come again. Say what, right? You spent the entire sermon applying it like it is about us. What are you talking about? Friends, what I'm saying is that Psalm 1 doesn't first and foremost describe God's people in general. It describes one specific blessed man in particular. Let me explain. Remember that when we interpret the Bible, we have to do so as much as, as possible with the perspective of the biblical authors. They wrote at a specific time in redemptive history, and they wrote based on all God's previous revelation available to them, right? So it should not surprise us at all if Psalm 1 kind of sounds remarkably similar to other passages of Scripture that were written before it, okay? So turn back in your Bible, turn back in your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, that's page 151. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I want you to listen to see if you hear anything that sounds like Psalm 1 in Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. This passage describes the ideal Israelite, how Israel was ideally to live as God's people. Deuteronomy 6.6, 6, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, night and day, day and night, the word is to reside in the hearts of God's people. But that's not the last time this idea is mentioned. Turn over to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 is not just about the ideal Israelite, but the ideal king that Israel would crown. Okay? Deuteronomy 17 18. And when he, this ideal king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a, in a book a copy of this law approved by the, the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law, this Torah, and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. But that's not all. Flip over just a few more pages to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua, Moses has passed off the scene and a new leader is in place who's going to lead God's people in the conquest of the, of the promised land. And look what the angel of the Lord says to Joshua in Joshua 1. Let's start reading verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success so that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. We've heard that before in this sermon, right? So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you'll have good success. 
In other words, friends, when the author of Psalm 1 penned these words, he was thinking of a particular blessed man. This man would be the ideal Israelite who would meditate on God's word when he lay down and when he rose up. He would be this ideal Joshua-like king who would represent God's people and delighting in God's word and meditating on it day and night. Oh, friends, this, this, this expectation, this high bar, this high standard that Psalm 1 lays out, it should characterize us. But we know that left to ourselves, it does not. We need a king to meet Psalm 1's high bar for us. Fast forward a few thousand years. Whereas the verses we just read looked forward to the ideal king, the author of Hebrews looked back on the ideal king. He looked back and he, he spoke of the person and work of Jesus the Christ. And he wrote in Hebrews 10 that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection is the ultimate fulfillment of King David's words in Psalm 40. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is written on my heart. Friends, who is the blessed man of Psalm 1? King Jesus is the blessed man. He is the one who always resisted the allure of sin and the counsel of the wicked. He is the one who, who always delighted in God's word, whose, whose meditation on it produced flawless obedience to it. He is the one who endured suffering righteously, even to the point of death on the cross, who was raised on the third day as proof that he is indeed the man who will always and forever flourish with true resurrection life. Say, John, what are you saying? What are you saying? Are you saying that Psalm 1 can't describe us? That it only describes Jesus? Oh no, friend. I am saying that the only way Psalm 1 can describe us is because it first describes Jesus. And it only describes us if we're united to our King by faith. It's only as we trust in His life, His death, His resurrection in our place that we are freed we are freed from our bondage to sin and wickedness and idolatry to delight in God's law, having been transformed by his spirit in our inner man to do so. Friend, do you want to be this blessed man? Do you want to flourish both now and eternally? Well, come to King Jesus by faith and delight yourself in his word. Trust in his death and his resurrection as your only hope of eternal life. And guess what will happen? Through your vital, life-giving connection to Jesus, he will make you that fruitful, flourishing man. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. Friends, Psalm 1 has set two ways to live before us. Which way will you choose? Will you choose the path of life and blessedness, this, this flourishing life that God intended you to have from the beginning? Or will you choose the path of death? It all hinges on whether you delight yourself in God's word and ultimately whether you set your heart in faith in God's King, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Oh, our God, we ask that through our Lord Jesus, you would make us these type of men and women that delight in your law. Oh, Father, that it fills our heart and mind. It fills our conversations. We delight in your word because we delight in you. Oh, Father, we ask that if any of us, I'm sure all of us on a regular basis struggle with coveting and envying the wicked, those who seem to have it all good and all fine, who are enjoying their life to the fullest, oh, Father, help us to have in our imagination the end of the wicked and so be warned away. To be warned back to you, the only source of life. Oh, we love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for giving your life for us. Thank you for being this blessed man. Thank you that we are united to you by faith. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.